Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Rajinder Reddy of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where he's Professor of Medicine and Director of Hepatology and also Medical Director of the Liver Transplant Program. We couldn't have a better person here today to discuss the recent article that he was part of, the ACG Clinical Guideline. Diagnosis and Management of Idiosyncratic Drug-Induced Liver Injury, which is now available online and in print in the May 2021 issue of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. Reddy, welcome. Let's begin simply. Why an update on drug-induced liver injury, which we may refer to as DILI during our conversation? Why is this important for our listeners and readers? Dr. Lacey, thanks very much for this opportunity to talk about the guideline and particularly the topic of drug-induced liver injury. Drug-induced liver injury mimics a wide spectrum of hepatobiliary disorders, and it is seen quite often in our clinical practice. Two to 5% of cases of hospitalized patients with jaundice are due to DILI. 10% of patients with jaundice die. 10% of cases of hepatitis in adults are due to DILI. 20% of cases of fulminant hepatic failure are due to DILI, and thus, this is a very relevant and important topic for our gastroenterologists and other physicians for that matter. Impressive facts, and I think it really calls to all of our attention and why this is so important. And when we think about these presentations, what are some of the most common presentations of drug-induced liver injury? From a symptom perspective, there is nothing specific that would point out to DILI. Presentations include a hepatitis like picture, a cholestatic picture, and then, of course, patients may have a mixed hepatocellular cholestatic picture. On an occasion, a patient may have a psyches as a presentation due to Bud-Chiari syndrome. Certain drugs are known to cause hepatic vein thrombosis and certain drugs infrequently cause liver tumors. Generally, it's hepatitis, cholestasis, or a mixed picture. Dr. Reddy, you mentioned maybe new onset ascites, and are there other physical exam findings or other symptoms that are predictive of drug-induced liver injury, or do we primarily rely on laboratory testing? Well, symptoms can be nonspecific, apart from the example that I gave of ascites. There's one symptom, though, that should alert the physician to the possibility of drug-induced liver injury, and that is pruritus. Severe pruritus is a manifestation of cholestasis and a cholestatic liver injury, so something that we need to keep in mind and have an increased awareness of a potential DILI event that has led to cholestasis. There are no specific laboratory tests here that can help in the diagnosis of DILI. I always say that the diagnosis of DILI requires a medical Sherlock Holmes. You need to be aware and then exclude other causes for liver injury. Look for a drug that has been added on in the past six months and look for a signature of a drug look for latency of a drug causing liver injury. So you really need to kind of have 
a broader awareness of Dili and exclude other causes. And that's how you come to a diagnosis of Dili due to an agent. Dr. Rudy, I really like a couple of great teaching points there. Is one for our listeners, make sure you ask about pruritus. And, and number two, keep your blinders off. Be that great detective to really uncover possibly the root cause. And this is a perfect segue because you mentioned in your review that this diagnosis can be difficult to make due to the lack of specific objective tests. And what tests most commonly bring this potential diagnosis to light? I um, also would like to give another clinical pearl. If a woman about the age of 50 has jaundice and you've ruled out biliary obstruction by simple ultrasound, it is one of two conditions. Either it is drug-induced liver injury or autoimmune hepatitis. And that clinical pearl has helped me enormously in my clinical practice. Now, tests. Of course, tests are primarily to rule out other causes for jaundice. So if you have a hepatitis-like picture and you have a mixed hepatocellular cholestatic picture, first-line investigations are to rule out viral hepatitis, viral hepatitis A, B, C, and even hepatitis E testing is recommended. Now, if these are unrevealing, then you go on to second-line tests such as ANA, ASMA, quantitative immunoglobulins, etc. If you do have purely cholestatic picture, which we'll get into later by way of R value, uh, you would need an ultrasound to ensure that there's no biliary tract disease. But again, the diagnosis of DILI is by exclusion and identifying a signature for a particular drug and latency of the drug causing DILI. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that. In your review, you highlight that one approach to diagnosing and characterizing drug-induced liver injury is to separate the potential liver injuries into intrinsic or idiosyncratic types. What is the intrinsic liver injury? And can you provide our listeners with a few examples? Well, intrinsic hepatotoxicity is due to a true hepatotoxic agent. Characteristics are that uh, this type of injury is experimentally reproducible, is dose-dependent, has a high incidence in humans, and the latent period is often short and consistent. The best example of this is estaminophen. Methotrexate can cause liver injury in a cumulative dose phenomenon, but the best example is methotrexate. Now, idiosyncratic reactions can be of two types. It's an unpredictable reaction due to a hepatotoxic agent. Dose dependency is low, incidence is low, and latent period is often long and variable. There are two types of idiosyncratic reactions. One is immunological, where the latency is short. They may have clinical features of hypersensitivity, such as rash, fever, eosinophilia. And with the rechallenge, you can promptly see liver injury. Then there is intermediate metabolite-related idiosyncratic reaction. The latency is longer. There are no hypersensitivity features, and response to rechallenge is delayed. And a classic example for this is isoniazid. 
There are a variety of other uh, examples as well, such as uh, nitrofurantoin, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, et cetera. Thank you very much for clarifying that. In this article, you mentioned predisposing factors for drug-induced liver injury. Could you provide us with maybe the top five or six culprits that we should always consider when evaluating patients with possible DILI? Well, the predisposing conditions can be divided into or categorized into host factors, environmental factors, and drug-related factors. Of all these, the use of alcohol is perhaps the most important predisposing factor that one should look for. Alcohol can cause depletion of glutathione. It can stimulate cytochrome P450 and readily facilitate the formation of a toxic intermediate metabolite. Next would be concomitant drugs that could potentially lead to stimulation of cytochrome P450 and creation of a toxic intermediate metabolite. Age, children are more susceptible to toxicity from minocycline or phenytoin. Now, if you were to look at certain drugs, such as macrodantin, you might see more commonly liver injury in women. So these are some of the key factors. There are certain situations where a daily dose of the drug that may play a role. Underlying chronic liver disease as a predisposing condition is contentious. Um, malnutrition can facilitate drug-induced liver injury. Obesity can facilitate drug-induced liver injury. So these are some of the more common predisposing factors, but concomitant alcohol use is perhaps the most important. And Dr. Reddy, you've kind of beat me to the punch, but that thinking about key components of the history that every provider should ask when considering drug-induced liver injury, and you've covered so much of this already, such as alcohol use and medication use and obesity and family history, are there other key things that maybe you didn't mention that a provider should always ask? I mentioned, but I want to emphasize again. So not uncommonly, a patient is on a drug and has been so for about five or six years, or maybe even longer, a classic example is statin. And when a patient presents with jaundice and someone looks up the various drugs that cause hepatotoxicity, and there's a flag from a statin or some other drug for a long period of time, they tend to attribute the hepatotoxicity to these drugs. It's important to recognize that patients who've been on drugs for such a long period of time even with their hepatotoxic potential, they are not the culprit. You have to ask about drugs in the past six months to a year that they may have taken because it's usually a relatively short latency and those are the drugs that cause liver injury. Another clinical pearl I want to give, if you really cannot come up with a drug that can explain the liver injury, go to the pharmacist have a printout of all the drugs from the pharmacy. Not uncommonly, patients forget to relate drugs that they have taken, particularly antibiotics. When I ask a patient you know, about antibiotics, they say, no, you look at the pharmacy printout, it's there. And they say, doc, oh, I forgot. I had a dental extraction and I was given this antibiotic. So you, as I pointed out, you need to be a medical Sherlock Holmes. 
great teaching points, and especially some of our patients who are women who might take routine antibiotics for UTI, they don't even consider it a medication anymore because it's so routine for them. So that's a great clinical pearl. Thank you. Let's focus now on laboratory tests. And in this great review article, you mentioned two things that I think it's worth highlighting. One is High's Law. Can you remind us about High's Law and also the R value? The late Professor Heinz Zimmerman made a simple observation several years ago. It has now come to be called as Heinz Law. What it is, is that if you meet Heinz Law, you have about a 10% mortality. And what is Heinz Law? Heinz Law is when a patient is on a drug that potentially has caused drug-induced liver injury. If the ALT is more than three times upper limit of normal, and the total bilirubin is more than two times upper limit of normal without any predisposing cholestatic picture with an elevated alkaline phosphatase. Such individuals would have met High's law, and there is about a 10% mortality risk in these patients. Now, our value is helpful in categorizing patients as having hepatocellular injury, cholestatic injury or a mixed cholestasis hepatocellular injury pattern. You take ALT, peak ALT, by the upper limit of normal for ALT, divided by alkaline phosphatase, divided by upper limit of normal for alkaline phosphatase. If the R value is more than five, that is hepatocellular injury. If it is between two and five, it is mixed hepatocellular cholestatic injury. And if it's less than two, it is cholestatic liver injury. Great. So for our listeners out there, remember an R value greater than five hepatocellular injury. Uh, Dr. Reddy, as you're initiating the evaluation of a patient with possible drug-induced liver injury, you've mentioned a few of these, but what other key diagnoses must you exclude based on either history or laboratory tests before you say that this is DILI? The rudimentary first-line tests are hepatitis B and hepatitis C serologic studies. should also do a hepatitis A antibody of the IgM type. Now, in the drug-induced liver injury network, there have been few cases of hepatitis E that have actually mimicked drug-induced liver injury. So if you do not have a classic picture and you're uncertain whether there's a delay or whether there's some other cause for liver injury should do hepatitis E testing. These are the first line tests. Now, if you do suspect an autoimmune hepatitis-like picture due to drugs such as macrodantin or minocycline, should do ANA, ASMA, quantitative immunoglobulins. Ultrasound is generally done, but it's more important that you do an ultrasound in someone who's got a cholestatic picture and perhaps even a second line radiologic studies such as a CT scan or MRI when you have cholestasis. So as a segue there in terms of diagnoses, let's think a little bit now in terms of testing. And you've kind of mentioned this a little bit, but could you give us a little bit more information about the value of an abdominal ultrasound and or the value of CT scan in these patients? So, um, as I pointed out, it's, it's a fundamental that we do a simple test as an ultrasound to ensure 
that there is no biliary tract disease. As I pointed out, women over the age of 50 join this high probability of it being drug-induced liver injury or autoimmune hepatitis. Yet, I think ultrasound is a cheap test and you certainly should do it to make sure that there's no biliary obstruction. In cholestatic liver injury, I would go to the second step of doing a CT scan or an MRI. And uh, that should be sufficient in, in ruling out a biliary tract issue. Now, seldom do we see nowadays ischemic cholangiopathy due to a drug. We used to see it a lot more in the days when we infused hepatic intraarterially certain chemotherapeutic agents, but that is not something that we see nowadays. And so one is not likely to see such a condition. Okay, thank you. For those listeners who are about my age, which is older, as a fellow, I was taught to do liver biopsies, and we did a lot of liver biopsies as GI fellows. Many GI fellows don't do this anymore. What's the value of a liver biopsy in these patients? The value of a liver biopsy is rather limited in assessing drug-induced liver injury. It is recommended in cases where you're uncertain about the diagnosis and where there might be a confound. Normally, in drug-induced liver injury, the transaminases and the clinical picture should improve by at least 50% within 30 days or at most 60 days. If indeed the transaminases do not fall significantly over a 30-day period, one would consider a liver biopsy. Now, some uh, cases of DILI can evolve onto chronic liver disease, particularly if the transaminases were abnormal or alkaline phosphatase, either independently or with transaminases, is abnormal, you would do a liver biopsy. And that is when the abnormalities persist beyond six months. Now, there might be a certain type of uh, liver injury that could be diagnosed with a liver biopsy, such as granulomatous hepatitis. So there, it may be of some help. But generally, if the clinical picture is such that there is no improvement over a short period of time, or there's rising abnormality in liver profile, or there is chronicity in liver profile beyond six months, one would consider a liver biopsy. But this is not a tool that is essential right from the get-go. Some of our listeners have probably not yet gotten to your article to read it in print, but for our listeners here today, table six is a great list of some of the worst offenders. You've already mentioned some of these, you know, antibiotics such as amoxicillin, clavulinic acid, and INH, isoniazide, and trimethoprim, and some of the other ones, nitrofurantoin. But could you add a few other top offenders that we should really be thinking about when we're considering the diagnosis of DILI? You have to really consider herbal and dietary supplements. This is really critical because if you look at a drug-induced liver injury network compilation of cases, there has been a steady increase in the contribution to the DILI agents by herbal and dietary supplements. This is often a challenge because, again, patients don't look at these as medications. Weight loss supplements and weight building, muscle building supplements are notorious in causing drug-induced liver injury, and they can cause either hepatocellular 
type of injury or cholestatic injury. If you were to look at individual agents, it's all antimicrobials, antimicrobials, antimicrobials. If you look at the top 10 agents that are responsible for DILI, it's amoxicillin clavulinate, isoniazide, nitrofurantoin, sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, minocycline, cefazolin, etc. Now, you also have to keep in mind that uh, macrodantin and minocycline can cause an autoimmune hepatitis-like picture, and you need to be aware of these agents causing liver injury. Last but not least, now there is a plethora of drugs in the category of immune checkpoint inhibitors and immunomoderators that have been responsible for DILI, and you really need to be aware of it. And one other point I want to make is that these last category of drugs can cause reactivation of hepatitis B, and you should be aware of it and rule that out before you label the case as a DILI. That's great in terms of reactivation for hep B. That's a great teaching point. And also, thank you for bringing the point about herbal supplements and vitamins and minerals and weight gain or weight loss products, because sometimes in the electronic medical record, those are not always captured. So we always need to make sure we ask about that. Dr. Reddy, in the last minute as we kind of wind down here, treatment. So how do we treat drug-induced liver injury? One obvious thing to do is to stop the drug. And then two, a couple of therapeutic modalities that come into question with regard to their utility. One is in acetylcysteine. Generally, it is not recommended for someone who has severe acute hepatitis, but they're bordering on acute liver failure. In acetylcysteine should be used. Next is of corticosteroids. While corticosteroids have been used in drug-induced liver injury, primarily they have a role and in an immunologically mediated idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury where there are some hypersensitivity manifestations. Also, corticosteroids have been used in patients who have a drug-related or drug-mediated autoimmune hepatitis-like picture, classically these are due to nitrofurantoin and minocycline. Of course, first step would be to stop these drugs to see what happens. But there's a tendency to use corticosteroids from the get-go, but a wiser strategy may be to wait to see what the course is like after you stop the drug that is in a drug-induced liver injury due to minocycline or macrodantin, where there's an autoimmune hepatitis-like picture. And then if they're not improving, to start corticosteroids. Dr. Reddy, this really has been just a great conversation. I know our listeners really appreciate it. Any last thoughts? I think uh, this is one of the more challenging and intriguing aspects of liver injury, that is drug-induced liver injury. It's always fascinating, and it's challenged me enormously. It really is important that we have this awareness in the background and try and use all our knowledge in trying to come up with the right diagnosis. All righty. Once again, Dr. Reddy, thank you so much for all of your great contributions to the field of hepatology and gastroenterology. For our listeners, this is just amazing. And don't forget to look at this article online or in print.
Thank you very much. It's really been my pleasure to do this podcast and hopefully we've been able to help our gastroenterology community in learning about Delhi.